When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Caleb Zachran, Assistant Editor of the New Books Network. Today, I'm speaking with Maxwell Kennel, Senior Research Associate at NOSM University. We're discussing ontologies of violence, deconstruction, pacifism, and displacement from Brill. This book provides insight into how we understand the nature of violence. Maxwell, thank you for joining me today on the New Books Network. Thanks for having me, Caleb. I appreciate uh, your time. Of course. Yeah. Thanks for being here. Uh, and, you know, of course, we're always, I, I love doing books from Brill. They're always, they're always very interesting. Uh, so just wanted to give a brief shout out. But before jumping into the book, I was wondering if you could tell me a little about yourself and how you came to write this book. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll second that about Brill. It was kind of a dream to publish with them because I they have their own kind of proprietary font. And so I was I'm worried I was a little too drawn to them for reasons of form. But yeah, so I, I came to write the book by a, a windabout way that I'll, uh, I'll, I'll share. So I'm, I'm currently a senior research associate at the Center for Social Accountability. And that's at the Northern Ontario School of Medicine, uh, which has recently become its own kind of autonomous university. So I, I at work, I work at a, on an interdisciplinary team and we're focused on kind of medical education reform, helping doctors and, and healthcare professionals become more connected and accountable with the communities they serve. And so I'm currently, you know, in my work, very excited about preparing for a longer project on, on what it would mean to think about socially accountable research. So my my scholarly work is connected to my work at the research center, uh, but in some ways it's it's a little bit broader. And so my first book um, with Palgrave Macmillan is called Post Secular History, and that was on the kind of political and normative character of periodization, like how we divide time and history and in religious ways, but also in secular ways. Um, and then. My next book after the one we're talking about is going to be on conspiratorial thinking and critical theory and, and political theology. Uh, and then in addition to that, I, I keep a foot in Mennonite studies uh, with a project where I'm working on a book on Mennonites and metaphysics, and I edit a, a book series in Anabaptist and Mennonite studies. So my work is it's kind of all over the place, but it's united by a single approach where I, I look critically at the, the normative and value-laden character of keywords and key concepts like secularity, religion, violence, conspiracy. And so, yeah, overall, my work is in critical theory and religious studies, which are they're interdisciplinary enough for me to to work freely. Now, the route to me writing this book was it was a long road. I I'll say that it, it's based on my doctoral dissertation that I wrote uh, under the direction of Travis Craker at McMaster University and defended in May 2021. And it was on ideas that I'd had for many years beforehand during my, my undergraduate and master's degrees. 
But it wasn't until I kind of I met Travis and until I encountered the very pluralistic program at McMaster that I was able to like pursue the project in a dedicated way. So that that's the that's where I'm at in the the route that took me here. So as far as the uh, the book is concerned, I was just wondering if if for listeners, just at the very most basic level, how do you understand the meaning of the term violence? Yeah, so so the book itself, it's called Ontologies of Violence, Deconstruction, Pacifism, and Displacement. Um, and so deconstruction is a, a stand-in for the work of French philosopher Jacques Derrida. Pacifism is a word I'm, I'm using as a stand-in for Mennonite forms of pacifism that are philosophical. And then displacement is, uh, is kind of my way of pointing to the work of Grace Jansen. Um, but the term violence is the core of the book. Right. I, I kind of wrote the book so you can you could read the introduction and conclusion and get the paradigm without necessarily having to do the three deep dives into the into Derrida, Mennonites and Jansen. So I think most people think about violence as something, you know, we can identify with our senses. And, and I noticed that most writing on violence doesn't really define the term. It proceeds using examples like murder or war or assault. But the way I think about violence is it's a little different. It's through ontology, which is the study of the kind of metaphysical structures and orders of the world. And it's through epistemology, right? The study of how we know what we know. So for me, violence is a category and a concept that's pretty far upstream from the examples we use to exemplify it. And I think violence is something that's just inextricable from how we think and know and how we understand the world and our relation to it. And that's why I knit the whole book around the idea that violence is best understood as a diagnostic concept that implies the, the violation of value-laden boundaries. Uh, can you expand on that, that particular uh, sentence that this idea of violence as being understood as a diagnostic concept that implies the violation of value-laden boundaries? Can you, uh, could you break down what a diagnostic concept is and then also, um, you know, this sort of sort of notion of value laden boundaries. Yeah, it's so the definition. I mean, I, I kind of wrote it in, in quite a compressed way that I expand on a lot in the book. But it's, I mean, to kind of move through each term. I mean, violence is a direct reflection of our values. Like without something to value, nothing can really be violated. And without symbolic boundary, boundaries that like encircle what we value. We wouldn't use the term violence to name a, a violation or a crossing. So I noticed that it's like hard to find an example of violence where a line isn't being crossed or a boundary around something important isn't being like transgressed. And so these boundaries are, are how we keep our social bonds of trust and the things we think are important. It's, it's how we keep things in place. And so I noticed that violence is a concept that it, it like brings with it the expectation that certain lines will not be crossed or should not. And it's, it's a negative concept that responds to states of affairs that we, we think should not be the case. And it's and then on top of that, it's a diagnostic concept because it, it's a reflection of what we value. So like if you call something violent, that tells me something about where you think the lines are. And so violence is a reflection of our values. And that means debates about what counts as violence also reflect our conflicts of values. So not everyone agrees, for example, on, on whether words or language can be violent. So the fact that violence is a contested concept leads me to see it as a, a reflection of much deeper conflicts of values. And it's also an aid in interpretation, 
in interpreting what people think is most important by listening for what what's underneath their use of the term. So as far as the case studies go, how did you settle on Grace Jansen, Jacques Derrida, and Mennonite thought tradition? I, so I was reading around in the, the history of Western religious and political thought, and, and I didn't find many like stable or, or central definitions of violence. And then when I, when I did find them, like Hannah Arendt uh, has a definition of violence that, that separates it from power. When I found definitions like that, I found they didn't like really reflect the breadth of how the term was being used, like in the public sphere. And so I was interested in thinkers who understood violence as something that can inhere in how we think and speak and know, and maybe even in, in, in the, the metaphysical structure of the world. Like, do we live in a, an inherently violent world? So then when I encountered Jacques Derrida's uh, early essay called Violence and Metaphysics, and then when I found that Mennonite theologians from my own tradition had responded to that, I, I was pretty thrilled because these, these are thinkers who were conceiving of violence as something upstream of its e exemplary manifestations. And then my, my supervisor recommended that I read Grace Jansen, and she has this very neglected but very beautiful trilogy uh, that she, she was assembling toward the end of her life, and it's called Death and the Displacement of Beauty. And so in that book, she challenges how Derrida understands violence, and she sympathizes with Mennonite pacifism. So there's like this dialogue that was already sort of underway in, in a germinal form, and then I used the, the dissertation and then the book as an excuse to, to deepen it and further it. Your book deals in the realm of political theology. Uh, for listeners, what, what is political theology in your view, and what is the relationship between your book and this area of study? Yeah, that's that's a really good question, because... This term political theology is quite is controversial and it's got a lot of angles to it. And the book does appear in a series on public and political theologies. And so it's it's another contested concept like violence. It, it often reflects what its users think is important, but and, and its political theology is often used as a name for political forms of theology, most often Christian theology, wherein theologians use political ideas to further their own aims. But the kind of political theology I work with is more interdisciplinary and more critical, and it, it stands apart from theology proper because it looks analytically at how concepts that you know initially appear to be secular and modern conceal theological and religious roots and histories, and, and they retain their structure even if they're emptied of religious content. So for the example I give is one, one of the better ones, I think, is progress, right? We think of social or economic progress as a modern secular idea, but the idea itself is received from Jewish and Christian ideas about the end of time, the end of the world, and, and the apocalypse. And this is something that uh, German thinkers like Karl Loveth and Hans Blumenberg wrote a lot about. Um, so I just started reading um, a, a book called Political Theology Today, 100 years after Carl Schmitt. Carl Schmitt's uh, one of the uh, very controversial and violent founding voices of the discourse. And this book shows how political theology has become kind of a, a field of research and a paradigm in the humanities and social sciences, like in its own right. Uh, but they show how it's, it's one that can't really avoid being scandalous and controversial. So Carl Schmitt famously was uh, the, the crown jurist of the Third Reich. Um, and his friend-enemy distinction uh, to animated his whole political thought uh, is something that's kind of been a 
cancer inside of political theology ever since. So part of my approach to political theology is trying to uh, help it become less violent. And so I, I think about scandal and controversy and, and these, these kind of difficult terms like political theology. It's pretty germane to the book because over the course of writing the book, I also uh, found I was thinking more that way about Jacques Derrida. Uh, he, he was a very scandalous figure. And his definition of violence, I, I noticed toward the end of my writing the book, and this shows up in the conclusion, uh, that his way of thinking about violence, it allowed him to overlook other forms of violence and avoid some things. Yeah, so let, let, I'll, I'll follow up just on that then about how Jacques Derrida conceived of violence. Yeah, so that's a, that's a difficult question. It's a, a pretty highly debated question as to whether Derrida even has like a formal definition of violence. He's a highly interpretive figure. He would respond to... Um, those who he was reading and interpreting. Um, so I focus on his essay, Violence and Metaphysics, where he's, he's most concerned with uh, Jewish philosopher Emmanuel Levinas. And so in this essay, Derrida says, there's, there's really no way to speak or to have language without some violence. And there's a phrase that I'm most interested in. It's his claim that predication is the first violence or the original violence. And I mean, I think to a lot of people, this sounds defeatist, right? It sounds like it's it's kind of giving up on the idea that one could work against violence using language. But his claim is more of a caution to those who think you could like fully escape violence and achieve peace through the same means by which all violence is mediated, and that's language. So there's like one level of what Derrida says violence is, but because I consider violence to be like a diagnostic interpretive concept, my first chapter reads his early work in detail and tries to show that, you know, every time he calls something violent, his real worry is about closure and totalization. And so the value that's underneath his use of the term violence is this kind of openness. He, he, he values a radical form of openness that eventually, I think, really robs his definition of violence of its, of its power, because at a certain stage for Derrida, things become so radically open that having any coherent boundaries becomes a real problem for him. And I encountered this in a book by uh, Vanessa Springora called Consent, where she just kind of offhand mentions that he, he signed a, quite a disturbing uh, open letter in the 60s or 70s uh, against the, um, the raising of uh, age of consent laws in France. So he was part of, Derrida was part of this French intelligentsia who thought, you know, that any curb on desire, anything that bounded anything off was a form of violence. And I see that as a, as a violent limitation of his thought. And I discuss that in the, the conclusion to the book. Uh, so I think there's, I, there's, there's always that possibility within the conversation on violence that it, it, uh, the desire to protect against it can flip into its opposite. And this is the case for all the, all the sources in the book. Yeah, how do you see that coming through uh, in Mennonite thought? And also, you know, in addition to looking at how, the, how Mennonite thought compares with Derrida's thought, uh, just giving a you know an overview of Met, of you know what Mennonites think and and believe. Yeah, so the Mennonite thing's interesting. It's a it's a, a tradition I kind of grew up in and work a bit in, and it's Mennonites come from a radical left wing of the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century. Um, the Anabaptist groups kind of were, were they wanted more severe, quicker reforms than their their Lutheran or, or Reformed uh, counterparts. And so that radicalism, you know, comes down the line and gets received in contemporary Mennonite thinking in some some interesting ways that I discuss in the second chapter of the book. 
Um, but I noticed that like Mennonites don't talk enough about violence. They, they, they talk far more about peace and justice. And those are definitely the positive correlates of violence, but they don't really tell us much about what, what they are against or about what violence is and does. So in my second chapter, I take up, I, I interpret the work of two highly exceptional, like philosophical theologians in the Mennonite tradition, and that's Chris Hubner and Pete Blum. And both of them are trying to, they're responding to Derrida and to that kind of conversation about whether language can be violent. And they're trying to articulate a vision of peace that sees peace as something that's, for, for Hubner, it's, it's precarious. You can't possess it. As soon as you think you have it, it's lost. And then similarly with Hubner, right? There's, or similarly with Bloom, sorry. Peace is something Im impossible. You can't really go anywhere without doing some violence. And so it's about anti-violent, you know, minimization tactics. And so the, the presence of violence in the Mennonite tradition is pretty deep. It's a pacifist tradition that's like known for its resistance to, to war. Um, it's a highly persecuted uh, history back to the, you know, to 1525 and onward. But the most famous Mennonite theologian, his name was John Howard Yoder. And, uh, you know, he was, he was the one who kind of put Mennonite theology on the map, uh, especially in terms of his politics of Jesus. But, you know, underneath all of this was a long-term highly disturbing program of, of sexual abuse, which he, you know, kind of like in the case of Heidegger, right? There was initially this thought that, oh, he, you know, he made some mistakes, but his, uh, his theology is stable and usable. But over time, as, you know, more documentary evidence came out, this, this Mennonite theologian, I mean, it's clear he, uh, sexual violence is like, in some respects, built into his theology. And so there's been this interior, like in-house reckoning with John Howard Yoder's work that I'm not so interested in going deeply into in the book. I didn't want to make my book all about him, but I, I think that there's something about the pacifist position that can actually be quite avoidant of the conflicts of values that lead to, that lead to and define violence. So that's something I talk a bit about in the second chapter. But overall, I'm interested in how these Mennonites respond to Derrida and say like, look, they're, they're, they're actually, they, they see Derrida in some respects as a, as a bit of a, an enemy. But part of my work in the second chapter is showing how they, their values actually do align. So when Hubner and Blum talk about violence, they're also often using it in a similar way, saying like, if something's violent, it offends against the openness of things. Violence closes things down rather than opens things up. So like a violent view of peace would be to say, like, I possess it and I know it's perfect definition. So that's, that's kind of the Mennonite conversation. Uh, and the responses to Derrida, are, there's a few of them, and I interpret them in, in close detail. But that's something I'm trying to further in the book. And just to, uh, you know, to fill out with uh, your three case studies, Grayson Jansen, if you could discuss her work, I, I'd actually not heard of, of her before. So it was interesting to, to learn about her. Um, but yeah, I would love to hear about how her conception of violence compares with uh, the Mennonite thought and, and Derrida. Yeah, so she's she's just fascinating and really wonderful to to read and to think about. Um, I encountered her thought. My my supervisor recommended that I look into her, and I hadn't heard of her either for for most of my my master's program. And so she's kind of like a hidden key in all of this, where you have Derrida, he's kind of got a huge thing going on, and then the Mennonites respond to him. Uh, but Jansen's an interesting third party because she criticizes Derrida's ideas about violence in language. She says, you know, you can't equate 
the force of a sentence with the force of a bomb. We need to think more carefully about how we're using that word. But she also, she, I think she grew up in a Mennonite or Mennonite Brethren context, which she then left. Um, I, I think because of her, her sexuality, she was a, a lesbian who like then moved to the UK and did a second doctorate and became a Quaker. So she's quite like, has, has a really broad vision of things. And she sympathizes still with, in some of her late work with the Mennonite pacifism, but, you know, I think has some, has some clearer thinking about peace than, than many Mennonites do. And so her whole, um, you know, thesis in her final trilogy, two of the volumes of which were posthumous, is that uh, we, we are both death obsessed and death avoidant. And she's, she's wanting to kind of reframe our uh, thoughts about mortality, the fact that we all die, and refocus on natality, the fact that we are all born. And natality, she draws that from Adriana Cavarero and Hannah Arendt as well. And this, this reframe is interesting to me because she, she tries to do it in a way that doesn't displace one with the other. She's trying to think about how we can be more life-affirming without being death-denying. Um, and I think the word displacement is really key for that. And I developed that in the book, I think, a little bit more than she does. Because um, I'm trying to think about displacement as a, as a violent structure of the world where you think differences lead inevitably to danger. And if one thing is different than another, then by necessity, it will displace the other thing. That's the violent ontology I'm pushing back against, you know, toward the conclusion of the book. So that's, that's the, the real possibilities I see in her thinking. She's able to criticize both Derrida's limitations and her, her feminist critique just like is such a necessary complement to Mennonite thinking for, for obvious reasons. And as far as just a broader framework for thinking about violence, um, you know, just to kind of bring it, bring it home, uh, how you think that, you know, both scholars and other people should think about violence differently than some of the uh, the other ideas that, that you've discussed so far? Yeah, so I think like the introduction of the book and throughout, like I, I give this definition of violence as the violation of value-laden boundaries. It's like a nice way of interpreting things. But I think the challenge for using this framework is to think about violence in a way that avoids two like twin problems. And the first is the tendency to just abandon the term violence to subjectivity, to say like, oh, it just means whatever we want it to mean. It's just a reflection of our values. If you value something different, your definition of violent is, violence is different. There you go. That's the one danger, right? That has some serious problems with it. And then the second is the opposite, is to like fix that term in place and declare you know, a set of static values against which we would position violence and have like just one definition for all time. So I want to avoid those two things. Violence is like radically subjective as a word. And, you know, the same kind of violent act done in one situation, the same act can be done elsewhere with slight changes in context. And it's not violent at all to those who are involved. So we have to acknowledge that we all think differently about what violence is. And that's because we all think differently. But this can't paralyze the defense of, of a set of social and symbolic boundaries. And it, it shouldn't paralyze anti-violent action that resists those, especially those who repurpose the term in like polemical and persuasive ways. So like calling something violent can become a political tactic that you use to delegitimize others. And so I think we need to go beyond the definition that I provide and, and contest the idea that calling something violent is enough to critique it. 
So when something, when someone says something is violent, I think the take home is the next question we should always ask is, all right, but what values does that reflect? And what conflicts of values does that expose? Yeah, I, I, I'm definitely the immediate example that just is springing to mind is like, you know, I'm an American, so American football. And, you know, a lot of people, myself included, think like, yeah, there's something kind of barbaric to it. But at the same time, in the context of American culture, it's hard to deny uh, it's hard to deny its place. And as a result, I feel kind of comfortable with that, with a certain, <laughs> with certain, you know, maybe acts of, of controlled violence, so long as it's, you know, everyone's okay with it or consenting yeah. to it. And that's, that's a key part of it, right? Like Jansen's so funny. She like, for her, you know, football, and she says this explicitly in one of her books, it's very funny that, that like football is a, is like a substitute for violence. And for her, like she, she condemns it in that respect because she thinks it's a reflection of a violent culture. But I hear the opposite argument from others that it's just like kind of an exhaust, like it's a way to kind of get the violence out so it doesn't show up elsewhere. I'm, I'm not so sure, uh, but I don't know enough about, about sports uh, or, <laughs> or to really say. Yeah, I know these sports are definitely, you know, it's a an under uh, discussed uh, field. Of, uh, you know, I, I was always wondering, I was like, I feel like there's so, sports play such a, a vital role um and things but yeah it's hard to fully like think about them in like a, in like these sort of theoretical philosophical approaches yeah. well one of one of the ways that i think of is like i've been using this word competition throughout the book right part of the problem i see with the this violent ontology of displacement is where you set up two different things is in competition with each other where you think one has to win like like natality or mortality. Like we would have to emphasize the fact that we all die at the expense of the fact that we're all born. But now I'm thinking a little bit more, trying to think more carefully about this term competition and question whether there is some, some healthy version of it where there might be enough, enough boundaries around competition and consent by those involved that it could lead to something good. But that takes us into a conversation about capitalism that, that needs a whole nother book, doesn't it? Yeah, it's hard, it's hard to squeeze everything in. Um, you know, to, to one book. Yeah, I've seen too many books that try and go too far afield. I'm already um, doing that. I'm already doing too much. This should have been three, right? Like, <laughs> as, so you mentioned at the very beginning that you have another book in the works. So I was wondering if you just quickly talk about that and a little bit of the other things that you've been thinking about since this book came out. Yeah, absolutely. So my just just following the finishing the dissertation, I went into a short postdoctoral fellowship at the Department for the Study of Religion at University of Toronto. And so I spent two years on a project there called Critique of Conspiracism, where I'm trying to think about the underlying structures of thought behind conspiratorial thinking, uh, the, what, what makes conspiracy theories what they are. And so I'm reading books by Michael Butter and uh, trying to enter that discourse. So my next book is, is called Critique of Conspiracism. It's under contract with uh, a series at Rutledge called Conspiracy Theories. Uh, and so for the next year or so, I'll be, I'll be working on on writing that one up. And that one takes basically three approaches to the problem. The first is trying to think about conspiratorial thinking as a somewhat religious phenomena. There's a whole conversation about that. The second paradigm I'm looking at is uh, critical theory and it's like current manifestations that follow from the Frankfurt School. So I'm reading the works of Rahel Yegi, Rainer Forst, uh, Robin Selicatis and Titus Stahl and trying to think about how to criticize conspiracy theories and conspiratorial thinking by showing how they they don't solve the problems they purport to solve and trying to like rather than paternalistically impose a standard onto them from outside whether that's education or critical thinking 
I want to kind of show their interior contradictions. And then the third paradigm I'm drawing on, which I'm really excited about, is something called internal family systems, which is a quite a largely popularized uh, therapy modality for the treatment of, of trauma and complex trauma. And so that's helping me kind of get outside of intellectualizing about conspiratorial thinking, which is very often an, a kind of an affective mode of speech. So that's that's the basic frame of the next book and more to come after that. Well, look forward to seeing to seeing what you do. You're definitely, you know, going going down some really interesting. I, I find it so hard personally to read so to you know to spend a lot of time reading about you know violence and these sorts of things. Um, you know, I, I'm wondering, you know, for you personally, like, is do you, do you find it difficult? Like, you need to create, uh, you know, periods of time where you, you can't be reading about this stuff, or is there something about reading about it that makes you feel like a little bit more peaceful? Yeah, that's hard. Like I'm, in a way I'm lucky. I, I'm not like people in, in discourses like peace and conflict studies or conflict resolution, where they're engaged in like situations that are of corporeal, material, physical violence right in front of them. Like I, I, I read thinkers who reflect on it quite abstractly and that, that abstraction has provided a layer of protection for me uh, that, that many people who do more concrete work don't have. So my, my uh, partner is a therapist who works with complex trauma and PTSD. That's a lot different, right? Like that's, that's much closer to the bone. Um, so for me, my, my self-care stuff is, is uh, it doesn't have to work against as much as, as it does for others who are more engaged. My hope is that the book can be a resource for, you know, theoretical thinking for those who do quite practical work in the field that can help them kind of think about the think about violence in a fresh or a new way. So that's that's the good end game I'm looking for. Yeah, I think that's, you know, always uh, always a good a good hope for, you know, the a, a connection between theory and practice. Uh, you, know, you know, it's obviously hard to square that circle sometimes. It's, you have to kind of operate in, in both worlds, um, you know, one at a time. But yeah, I, I definitely think that Think, think that I could see could see that connection. Uh, well, Maxwell, thank you so much for being a guest on the New Books Network. It's great speaking to you. The book is Ontologies of Violence, Deconstruction, Pacifism, and Displacement from Brill. Thank you. Thank you so much, Caleb.